Hello everyone and welcome to this, the In Context podcast with me, Gregor Thompson. This is episode 26 and today I'm joined by British writer, TV, stage and voiceover actress Miranda Keeling. Her new book is The Year I Stopped to Notice, in which Miranda notices ordinary things that she encounters on buses, in cafes, on walks in the park or down the street. The result is a joyful, poignant and familiar portrait of everyday life. I love this book. It packs so many meaningful and deep themes, and you definitely get that in the conversation that we had. Miranda is definitely a poetic witness to the beauty and magic of the world. But before we get into the episode, I just want to tell you quickly about the sponsor of the podcast. So this episode is brought to you by the Struggle for Meaning newsletter. This is a weekly newsletter in which I send out every Sunday for free a short article concerning embracing struggle. If you're struggling to be more productive, to be healthy, to achieve your dreams, perhaps you've been chasing the wrong thing. A lot of us believe that we should be aiming for happiness, but this to me is an unwise pursuit as happiness comes and goes without any control from us. But there is one constant in life that we rarely admit and that is struggle, suffering, pain, and the best way to feel fulfilled is to bear that responsibility of struggle, is to embrace it, is to volunteer yourself to it. That's the way to be more fulfilled in life. It's the reason why we feel good after exercising, because it's a struggle to exercise. It's a struggle to eat healthy, but we feel good when we do. We feel good after we've had an uncomfortable conversation, but it's definitely a struggle to have it. So that's why I created the newsletter. Along with the article, I also provide tips, strategies, and recommendations to help you along the way. To sign up again for free, go to gregorthompson.com. The link will be in the show notes. You just need to confirm your subscription and make sure you check your spam folder for your welcome newsletter. If you add me to your contacts, you will receive it every week in your inbox for free. And that's it. Once you've subscribed, you're on your way to struggling more and being more productive, healthy, and motivated. And lastly, I promise this is the last piece of housekeeping before we get into the conversation. If you want to stay up to date with everything concerning the podcast, the Struggle for Meaning newsletter, and to watch short clips from the podcast, you can follow my social media channels. My Instagram is Gregor S. Thompson, all one word. My Facebook is Gregor Thompson journalist. And you can watch the podcast on my YouTube channel, which is Gregor Thompson, all one word. All of these will be linked in the show notes so you can subscribe and follow me there and you'll be kept up to date with all the guests I have on the podcast and all the updates I have concerning my work. But for now, thank you for listening so far and enjoy the conversation with Miranda Keeling. Um, so Miranda, I've got the book here, The Year I Stopped to Notice. Um, firstly, thank you for writing it because when I when it arrived, um, I was pleasantly surprised that I was going to be able to read the whole thing before we recorded the episode. <laughs> a lot of my previous guests have written like big, massive, deep books, and I, I only get like a quarter of the way through if I'm lucky. So I don't actually have it all in my head of like what the whole book was about. So, um, so I, I guess my first question is, how do you make the ordinary so magical? Oh, that's a really lovely question because I'm I'm trying to think now whether I'm doing it or whether it's just how it is and when you look at it you see it right and I don't know what the answer is I don't know whether I'd have to be honest and say that the 
lens that you see this stuff through when you look at the book or you look at my writing is me, isn't it? So it's not like, it's not like I'm sure that somebody else would go out and see exactly the same things, mm-hmm. but I do like to keep it truthful and for it to be a record of, of those tiny moments that are, that are genuinely happening around us. So it's a combination of something to do with how my brain processes the world and the world. Well, it kind of leads on to my next question. Um, well, my next point more is that we all see the world through our own perspective. And so the things that happen to us seem to be more um, poignant because it's happening to us, but everyone else has their own perspective. So it's, it's almost like we're all living in a film where all the main characters of our own film, but everyone else is actually the supporting actors of our films. Yes. Um, and so I think a lot of us unconsciously kind of move through life without actually noticing things. And so we don't actually think there's a lot of beauty or magic in our own lives because we're kind of slowly like zombie walking through life and we're not actually taking the time to notice. So I think that's maybe something that I got from the book is that if we just stop to notice, we will see that there is beauty in the world and there's beauty in seemingly ordinary things. I think you're absolutely right. And I think there's also um, sadness and (laughs) difficulty and confusion and all of those things too. And I think maybe, maybe with us all kind of stuck in our devices a lot of the time these days that we do look up if somebody's shouting or if there's something difficult and we're not necessarily looking up for the little things, Um, but they're there. And as soon as you start to kind of open yourself up to them, then I think you notice the really, you notice the way that somebody folds their glasses up when they take them off their head against their face or, and you go, well, that's what I do. And you, it just, it just sparks a little something human, you know. I think the the sad thing about the world we live in now is that it's just a stat it reminded me of what you were talking about that fact that we we look up when something um, horrible is happening and it's it's why on social media that something bad or something chaotic will be shared more on social media than something good something positive um and that's to me it's really worrying but something else that came from the book when we're talking about perspectives is that idea that if you like if you look up in the stars you are humbled because you realize that the problems you have are quite insignificant. They're not, they're significant to you, but in the grand scheme of things, they're very insignificant. And I also get that same perspective. If I'm walking down a street and you can see through people's windows, not a weird way, that sounds weird, but if you are walking through people, you can (laughs) see, it's like you have it in your head. It's like, oh, everyone else has their own lives and they're just going around it as well. And they're just trying to do the best they can. And I think that's something I got from the book as well. I, that's what I tend to do is just sometimes you kind of, it kind of clicks in place that you're like, everyone else has their own problems and everyone else is trying to navigate through life as well. And that almost humbles you. And it also allows you to deal with your own um, insecurities better. I think you're absolutely right. And I used to spend a lot of time when I was at school sort of age, looking out the window from, you know, the double decker bus from the top and just seeing masses of people kind of just streaming through London and just that sense of like oh my gosh every single one of those people has their own I don't know concerns and joys and mm-hmm. worries and whatever and I'll probably never know them I'll never know their name and but but to them that, that their perspective on the world 
yeah, it's really fascinating. And it made me think of two things. One, you know, just when astronauts go out into space and they say they look back at the Earth and suddenly everything that they were worried about falls away because the, the kind of vastness of our surroundings hits home. Um, and then the other thing was that somebody got in touch with me a while ago um, about uh, there's a girl in Ukraine. Certainly she was doing this um, and she was in the middle of everything she was dealing with was documenting the really small things around her. Like she'd just go out for a very small walk and she'd see somebody with their dog and she'd kind of write that down. And mm-hmm. she said, oh, this reminds me of what you're doing. And obviously my surroundings are not like hers. You know, they're not comparable really. But it's interesting that she's using the same thing to make herself feel connected to her environment in a way that feels like she can cope with it. So I guess, yeah, it also made me think of there's loads and loads of people on the earth. It's pretty intense. We've all got our own, you know, thing we're trying to deal with. And sometimes we need to focus in a bit. Yeah. Yeah. How... How do you think, what's a contributing, what's some contributing factors that you think led you to being able to notice these things more? Was it upbringing? Was it culture? Was there anything like that? I have always done it. I mean, always, since I was, I was doing it when I was four years old, just really, and also being so much more interested than other people around me. I've got this memory when I was a kid, because I grew up in lots of different, I grew up in America and the Netherlands, and I was born in Yorkshire, and I think that also is part of perhaps me noticing different spaces, right? But I remember being handed a drink, an iced drink in the States by my mom's friend. And I was like, oh my gosh, this ice cube has all these little bubble air bubbles in it. So beautiful. She, she said, oh, you would notice that. And I remember thinking it didn't sound almost like a compliment, you know, um, because I was a bit away with the fairies, I guess it might have seemed. But it's because I was really focusing on these little things yeah i think that's that's something i used to do if i was on the bus and there was little water droplets on the windows which is most likely going to happen in scotland i would think they were racing so each drop there and i was like watching them and be like oh which one's going to win okay after this would happen (laughs) (laughs) you get them a prize at the end Uh, i'm going to look through my observations because i see if i can find one because i have one about raindrops racing each other down the window is that weird yeah, yeah. yeah all the same um, a lot of people find that when they're in the midst of life that other people tend to frustrate them so someone cuts them off in traffic or um just someone does something very small and i'm guilty of that so like i i've worked in customer service and when you're working customer service you tend to notice the worst things about customers rather than the good things about customers like if someone doesn't say thank you or something like that um so what would you say to someone who is struggling with being frustrated with other people is it just to open their eyes a bit and try and notice the positive more i worked in customer service for for a long time i know exactly what you mean um i don't know whether i want to be so bold as to tell somebody what will work for them Mm, but but those difficult people are are not going to go away um, and sometimes the people that I observe are, are being difficult or, um, uh, and that's interesting. And I sort of wonder what motivates them. I often wonder what motivates people. I uh, remember hearing somebody say that whatever, something difficult would happen to me with somebody and they said, oh, maybe it would help to think that they're doing their best in their circumstances. 
Right. And the thing is, you you know, that might sound a bit, but if if um, that is true, then you get to let go because you get to go. Oh well, you know, that they, they were awful to me, but they were doing their best, and it doesn't pull you kind of in, I guess, to their how they're feeling. There's always something else to notice, though. If there's somebody shouting or being, you know, whatever at you on, on one side of your vision, there's also a snail trying to get across a really wide bit of tarmac in the park. And, you know, that's interesting. And what, are you going to help them or are you going to intervene? Are they trying to get to their friend? Um, so, yeah, I think it's just about trying to do that. It's not always easy, though, is it? I sound I could sound really privileged saying this, like, oh, look at the snails. I mean, for some mm-hmm. people, that their lives are really hard and there's lots around that's you know yeah like one thing that helps me is that I I studied a master's in philosophy and so (laughs) my big um my big topic in philosophy was free will and so I was studying the fact that some theorists and I think I'm included in that do not believe that we have any free will and so most people would think that that's a negative thing, that like our achievements aren't our achievements and our failures aren't our failures. But the positive thing for me is that you can be more empathetic towards other people because they didn't choose their circumstances. So if someone's rude to you, you, you automatically think, well, something bad's happened in their day or something's bad's going on in their life. That it's not me that's made them annoyed. It's something else that's contributed to it. And that makes you a bit more... Um, optimistic about humanity because it's not that people are horrible it's just that their circumstances could be horrible which they didn't choose yeah and the positive thing about that is maybe if their circumstances change they would have the opportunity to change as well and also that um nobody wants to feel like that the person who is being really you know the really difficult driver or whatever they're not loving that feeling it's how they're coping for some reason Mm. I mean, this is no training to saying this. It's just an instinct, obviously. Mm-hmm. Well, I always think like if, if someone cuts me off in traffic or if someone's speeding or if say like a, a server gives me bad service or something like that, I usually think, I think that if someone cuts me off in traffic, it might be that they might be driving to an emergency. Mm, they, didn't exactly. deli- they, didn't, they didn't cut you off just to be really annoying and ruin your day. You're, you're the one that's letting it ruin your day. It's not that person. And so I always think like the work, they could be in the worst possible situation right now. And that's the best they could do. Same. And um, so we'll move on to page 100 because that's actually what, what I was looking for. So that's a good um, number. Yeah. So yeah. I'll, I'll read it out. Um, it's, I won't do the accent <laughs> on that one. So oh, no. Um, no, I wouldn't so either. so so it's a man on his phone in hackney and he said it's just one of those things bruv people just got to live with sadness sometimes it's okay to watch tv until the world's clear you you will be out the other side soon and to me that showed the the positive and the negative aspects of being human because the person he's speaking to is clearly in a negative situation but the but the person who's giving the advice is just some such a positive thing to say and it's just so it's it makes you optimistic about humanity as well. It really does. Um, and I think that's one of the things I got from the book is there is some sad moments, but there's in each sad moment, there's something positive out of it that you get out of it. And I think that's, that's part of that noticing is just 
is not only seeing a negative, not only seeing the positive, but seeing the positive in the negative. Yes, yes, yes. And sometimes the sadness in the joy. It's really interesting. And this moment was lovely. I had a lot of had a lot of response from it. Um, I had a lot of response from men who saying that it was really important to see their positive friendships represented. They felt that society didn't always represent male friendship like that. Um, so that was really interesting. And I think um, I, I do a lot of, of noticing when people just suddenly seem to have time for each other. Mm-hmm. People are kinder than we, than we think sometimes too. They, they, I mean, the, uh, seeing the woman who'd left her, um, she'd forgot, I've done this. She'd gone to cash out of a machine and she'd left it. She'd just left mm. it. She was distracted or tired or whatever. And she started walking off. And it took three strangers of like one taking the money, handing it to somebody else who ran that, you know, to get it yeah. to her. But when she turned around and said thank you to this one stranger, she didn't even realize that three people had got the money to her. And mm. we sort of think, oh, somebody would just take it. Yeah, and they do. Mm-hmm. But that's a minority of situations, usual. Yeah. So that was interesting. I mean, that's a slightly a segue, really, to what you're saying. But I guess what how it works is that people can surprise you, and situations can surprise you. So there's a positive and a negative, or a a human behaviour that has some um, kind of beauty to it. Mm. Something small. Yeah. yeah. You've spoken um, on another podcast about grief. And we won't get too deep into the weeds, but something that I found that came to me while I was listening to you talk about it is that in the worst kind of situations that humans deal with, grief being one of them, or mental illness, or um, even COVID-19, you you read it in books like um, Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning. He's in the worst situation that humans ever endured in the Holocaust. And you also find the best of humanity in those situations. And you find that in grief as well. If someone's going through grief, all of their loved ones kind of form around them almost unconsciously. And it's just that, it's that um, almost paradox of the worst possible things happening, but the best possible um, part of humanity is also happening alongside that. Do, 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 you, yeah. do you find that? Do you know, it's really making me think of something sort of... Um... You know, you talk about sort of profound in, in the in the small things, and uh, as in we, we as humans do. And I, I yeah, I, I I think on that podcast I was probably talking about, you know, because my mom died when I was young. I might have been talking about that, and um, I, I remember when that happened. Very specifically, noticing tiny things to cope. I remember noticing a pattern on the back of a car seat that I was in going. I think to a hospital and like I don't know that it it was definitely a way of <sighs> grief focuses you you it really focuses you because you can't you can't not in a way it focuses everything so at the time that something really big is happening you're like oh maybe I don't need this person in my life who isn't good for me or maybe you know you haven't got the spare energy they're probably mm-hmm. the same as when you've just had a baby and you're so tired you haven't got the spare energy to to get I don't know to get bogged down in the things that normally that normally focus you so you do start you do start focusing in that that situation of being surrounded by people who love you you know if you're lucky and, and that is what happens to you 
it's also very focusing. You've suddenly got all these people with you who um, are there just to be there. Yeah. 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 Um, I think also what I think we have the proclivity to do as humans is to focus on the things we focus on are dependent on what's going on in our lives. So yeah. if it's grief, so um, about seven years I lost someone and I, I tended to find that I was getting all these like symbols coming up. I, I wasn't, like it, it was just coincidences, but um, it would be like loud cars or something like that. Like a, a car would drive past that was really loud and that would be like, oh, that's really weird. I'm just thinking about that. Then a loud car drove past. Um, and it's the same if you're going through a bad time, you notice the negatives more as well. Mm-hmm. So the the thing that it made me think of was traffic lights. If you keep on getting a red light, you notice that and you get really frustrated with that. You don't notice when they're green all the time. Yeah. You don't tend to notice that. You only notice when it's negative. Yeah. And I think that's... I think that's the lesson there is that you should continually make it a practice of trying to see the positive, even if you're unconsciously finding the positive, keep consciously doing it. Yeah, because I think it's something that you need to practice through like every day to keep it up. And it's clearly something you've like honed in on. It is something I practice every day. And, and, and even if it's not the positive, it's certainly the mundane or the mm. something that doesn't have that fizz of difficulty it's just somebody you know i might describe her clothes because they the way that the colors work together is really interesting mm. and maybe her feet are really neatly kind of together beside each other and that's kind of nice and just that mm. it's not that it's positive exactly but it's definitely not negative and so it doesn't pull me in a direction that's not not helpful because I think you could easily read my stuff and think does she live in the Truman show (laughs) (laughs) um unless you're too young to remember that um and so yeah I have also for this I have got a little list of some of them because it was occurring to me that if you wanted me to read some I could so that if anyone listening has no idea what I do it might be nice to give them just a few Actually, that's lucky that the next question I actually have one, two, three, four, five. I have six pages just for one question because there's a theme that emerged from this question. So I'm gonna I'm gonna read I'm gonna read each one out because so the first one is a little girl walks up Brighton Beach carefully carrying an upended plastic water bottle top. Me, what's in there, her smiling, the sea. Women on the tube, how old is your baby? Mum, she's two and a half weeks. Woman, wow, what's her name? Mum, still deciding. Little girl nearby, my name's Martha. So you can have that for free. Yeah. <clears throat> a little boy being pushed in a pram waves at every person he passes and shouts, you're doing so well. Everybody needs that little boy in their life, right? <laughs> a little girl on a doorstep manages to negotiate eating an entire piece of toast while having her coat put on by her mum. A small boy in the bus carefully eats the head and all the limbs from his gingerbread man and passes it to his little sister who finishes it off the middle. Finishes off the middle. Right, and the last one is 
Three small children walk arm in arm through Hampstead Heath. With a brilliant smile, the middle one suddenly shouts, we're together. So you might have found a theme through all of those ones I just read. Um, so one of my previous guests was Gavin Oates, who is a um, best-selling author and motivational speaker, and he was a former teacher, and he always advocates that children are magic and their imaginations are beautiful. And that's what I found every time I got to a page where it was mentioning a child, it was always something magical. It was always their imagination kind of running wild. And it made me think that so many adults lose that. And it reminded me of something Gavin Oates said that when we're children, we look outside and we think, I want to build a den out there, even if it rains in an hour. But yeah. an adult would look outside and go, it's going to rain in an hour, so why would I bother? So why, why do we lose that? I think about this so much. And I think because I you know one of the things I did for years and I still do is acting which is all about <clears throat> trying to find that again that sense of play because we do lose it I think it's why people do all kinds of things that alter their mind even to the point of just you know having a drink or whatever people are doing things all the time to try and where is my child how do I release the child because the grown-up has stolen it from me um and children see see things having a four-year-old is incredible for that she is she is um the stuff she says and the questions she asks me and they're so big some of the questions I even even experienced I don't know meditators of, of 95 wouldn't be able to answer some of her questions why do we lose it I think we lose it to cope mm. And we lose it because for some reason the adults around us tell us we can't have it anymore. So we give it up. And then we tell the next generation coming up that it's not how, not how it is. You can't have ice cream every day. I mean, not that ice cream every day is very good for you, but it's fascinating. I, I did hear, and some of the kids' stuff is really dark, which is also hilarious and brilliant. That there's the one in here about the the guy, the guy who did his kids' Halloween makeup, and they really loved it, but it scared their friends because he was a trauma surgeon. <laughs> so he'd done it really well. Um, and I saw a little girl the other day who was with her mum in a shop, and she said something about, "Oh, the old lady's not here." Or what old lady? You know, the one that stands in the corner with the grey face, always looking down and pointing this way. You know, and her mum went, um, <laughs> "I'm going to pay for the shopping and never come back here again." <laughs> yeah. And you sort of think, you know, can children actually see this stuff? Or are they, is there, you know, those cartoons about children can fly until somebody tells them they can't and then they can't and they fall down. Yeah, I think the why is because we have to fit into a society that has removed a lot of its ability to, to play and to mm. allow ourselves to feel that magic. Mm. Fit. Yeah, I think... What you were saying there, what we probably should do is, what is the book? We've not even gotten into that. <laughs> and why, what, yeah. what is your Twitter account as well? Because your Twitter account is what um, grew so like yeah. massively. So yeah, that, that would probably be a, a, a good way to introduce yourself. It wasn't my intention to get so Thank deep you. in the weeds. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I always end up doing. Um, so the book, so I went onto Twitter because I wasn't on social media and I went onto Twitter back in, back when the London, well, the general riots were happening, but I was in London, living in Tottenham. They were happening all around. Somebody had said, if you go on this thing called Twitter, um, 
you'll be able to find out if it's coming down your road basically in real time. So I went on and it was useful for that, terrifying, but useful. And then, um, and then I didn't really understand Twitter. I think I thought Twitter was about telling people, I don't know, advertising your life in a boring kind of way. So I tried doing that. I tried saying, Hey, I've just done this job. And it was really, it didn't work for me at all. And I was just about to leave. And then I put this, I was in my garden and my solar lamp was on the table and it was just making a little glow. And I just, for some reason, wrote into Twitter, the solar lamp on my table is, is lovely in the, in the darkness or something. And I just got a couple of little, of little replies saying, Oh, that's nice. And so I didn't, I didn't take the app off my phone and I stayed on and I just started this little travel diary essentially online. And I've always kept, I had always kept a diary for years um, which I don't have now, but it was almost that. It was just a little diary of my of the moments in my day. And what was lovely was it went from from sort of friends and family who were on there to just these thousands of strangers from all over the world who just follow these little moments. And I went from my anonymous count, which was a, a ginger cat. And I put my real name on it because I thought, okay, I'm going to exist here, um, which felt kind of vulnerable because it's online. But yeah, and then, and then I did this for years and people started, artists started drawing some of them, some of my pieces and sending me their, their pictures of them. And like, I don't know if, um, this, oh yeah, so this one, a woman on the tube in a mint green jumper drinks a massive cup of coffee. Her bird-like face carries an expression of waiting for it to kick in. So I just posted that in, I don't know when that was, 2014 or something. And Lucy Power, this artist, drew this. Can you see that? Yeah. And just sent it to me. She sent it to me. She said, I've drawn this. I'd love to send you a copy of it. What's your address? So I've got it up on my wall. And she just, she didn't do it so that for any reason I had very few followers at that point she did it just because she wanted to respond so then I've got this travel diary of, of 40,000 now I've got of these little observations mm. and then there's drawings that keep coming as well of them and and I was approached to, to make a book yeah in 2019 mm. that's what this is and so the book's mostly set in London but there is some parts where you venture out to different places yeah. Um, did you find distinct differences when you were observing people's behaviour when you went to different places? That's interesting. Did I? The essential kind of humanity is the same, but the observations are different. Things like mm -hmm. sitting on that bus in Wakefield when the driver stopped to talk to everybody who was getting on. <laughs> and I remember thinking, wow, you know... <laughs> In London, uh, back in East London, I, people would be shouting at him, but here it was lovely. So, so there are, and I don't mean any anything about Wakefield being a slower place or anything. People from Wakefield will probably say, "What? My bus is on time." Um, but yeah, there there are differences, but there's a connection that's 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 the same. I mean, when I was observing in New York recently, I was reminded because my family are American, just reminded how loud it is. So everything, everybody is shouting because. The, and the eye contact is really extreme. When I got here from the States, having grown up there for a bit, I remember distinctly people saying to me, why are you staring at everyone? Because like, on the subway, people just stare at you. There's no like British, like, you know. Yeah, yeah. 
So yeah, differences. I did recently a um, interview for Radio Scotland, and so I got together my Scottish, some of my Scottish observations for the interview. Who laughed and said, "Oh, thanks," you know, in that very sort of chilled kind of Scots sort of way. But I, but I, I read them, and they are—they're the same. There's nothing. Yeah, I don't know. Do you no. feel at, where in Scotland are you? Edinburgh. Ah, do you feel like it's very different when you come to London? You observe different things. Yes. Okay. <laughs> I, I see. I see a difference between Edinburgh and Glasgow, yeah, which no. is only about half an hour, forty minutes. But there's a, a big difference with the way people behave and the way people are with each other. Mm-hmm. Um, but London, yeah, I noticed it was just one. It's just busier because yeah. there's obviously much more people. But there's a lot of people in a rush. There's either a lot of people in a rush. It's like, it's like two ends of a spectrum. There's either a lot of people in a rush or there's a lot of people really slow because they're tourists. tourists yeah. And so I'm usually somewhere in between yeah. that because if I'm there as a tourist, I'm not there to rush about, but I'm also not there just to like take pictures of Big Ben and stuff like that. I'm more there just to like get to the next <laughs> restaurant or the next bar or something like that. Yeah. Um, but yeah. I noticed that in New York as well, the, the, the noise of New York and just how massive it is. Like yeah. nothing actually prepares you for that because you you see pictures like the big skyscrapers and that, but when you're actually there and you're yeah. looking up at them and and there's and even if you're not like in a hotel at like even past midnight in the early hours of the morning, there's still noises going on. There's so like oh, it's such a New York distinct noise. Whereas in Edinburgh, one o'clock in the morning is like there's no one out. Yeah, it's very it's very interesting. That is really interesting. Also, I guess how people use the space is different too. In Edinburgh, I remember when I was there for a show years ago, what I loved about it but found so confusing was the structure of it meant that you could see where you wanted to be, but you couldn't work out how to get there Mm. as a tourist. You know, sort of, oh, I can see this road. I can look over this Mm -hmm. thing. And it felt like an Escher Mm-hmm. Which I love. It's, it's almost like it's built in layers yeah if you like you look up at like the old town from the new part it, you can see all these layers and every time i'm giving people directions i'm, I'm always saying like you have to go through there then upstairs and up yeah. more stairs because you have to keep climbing basically the different levels um one thing i also found in the book was that a lot of entries made me want to know more ah, like yes. you would say something and i'd be like oh i want to know how that story went but that's almost it's almost not the point because that's not how human experience is. You see all these things, but you don't know more because you don't know these people. And it reminds so the page is one, two, seven. There's one specific. It almost it almost sounds like a film. This one. It was a man stands outside the front door of a terraced house. He minutely adjusts his hair. He lifts up a bunch of flowers. He inhales. He rings the bell. It was like a film because it's like, what was going on? Was yeah. he? Was it a date or was he? I don't know, seeing his mum or something like that. For for you, you start spinning all these stories in your head, thinking like, what could that be? And we tend to think that our lives aren't like movies. Like the movies are more interesting, but that's that's a movie story right there. That's the start of a movie, and you really want to know more. And it's exactly the moment that any of us could have had. You're absolutely right. And I have had people saying that they're using them for writing prompts or for drama, for scenes, to build scenes, which makes a lot of sense. Yeah. It's the beginning or the middle or or the end of something, we don't know. Yeah, I mean, he could be... He could be bringing flowers to say sorry to someone. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I don't know. They might not answer. 
he might go away. Yeah. <laughs> the complete anti-climax. <laughs> Um, do you think this practice is, you've mentioned before that this practice is almost like a form of meditation um, yeah. and you've mentioned that you do practice meditation. And so that to me is like, so when I'm meditating, I like bring, you bring your attention to your breath and then it's to what you see, then it's to what you hear. And if you keep doing that, I, I tend to try and do that throughout the day. So I set little alarms on my watch and every hour it'll go off. And then I kind of like bring myself out of my head because I've just realized for that last hour, I've been gone, I've been somewhere else. And so if you bring it back to the present and just try and go as long as you can with yeah. being present and noticing so noticing the breath. Um, so what what form does your meditation take? So over the years, it's changed a bit. So I started with meditation on the breath. Um, and now at the moment, anyway, I'm doing the contents of my mind, mm. which means you can do that in several different ways. But the way that I do it is trying to imagine that my mind is is sort of not contained by my head but is just sort of a, a space and then as the thoughts come in you can either notice them and think oh cat food whatever um or you can not the noticing can help because it can help you realize how many times you think about something um or, or if, if you don't want to be doing that you can just let them kind of float by and then you start to notice the space in between the thoughts which is so useful in so many different ways in life mm. that's what i'm doing at the moment it's not um it's not really affiliated to any particular thing it's just a mindfulness mm. practice and i find it really helpful but yeah this is similar yeah and I have to do what you're talking about all the time. And I, I use an app at the moment to shut down everything else right. that could distract me. And I think exactly what you've said. I need an hour of peace and I turn the app on and then nothing, I've essentially got a dumb phone because nothing, I can't do anything with it. Mm -hmm. I start doing some writing or reading. Yeah. I think also that the idea of being aware of your thoughts, to me, what helped was I realized that I was feeling the emotion before the contents of the emotion came about. So say it was something like anxiety, I would feel the anxiety, then the thought would come, and then I'd get anxious about the thought. But what actually happened is I was feeling anxious first with no content, and then the content came. And then you just kind of have to, like if there's anything negative you're thinking about, you have to remember that you were feeling the emotion first, so it's not what you're thinking. Because I think people get, get lost in that and they start thinking, how could I think something like that? I had a, a previous guest um, who is an addiction psychiatrist. And oh. she said when um, she first had her child, she was in the kitchen with her baby and she had this horrible thought of like smashing her baby on the, on the counter. And she would continually think that over being like, how could I think such a horrible thing? What kind of mother can I be? And then it suddenly hit her that it wasn't that she was scared that she wanted to do that. It was she was so scared of the fragility of her baby that that, that like something so small could happen and she had to like protect her baby basically. And that's so helpful, that sort of just looking at your thoughts completely non-judgmentally and objectively. And if you do that, it tends to bring back an answer like that. It's like, you're not a hor horrible human for thinking that thing. You're just scared that something's going to happen. Yeah, yeah. And our minds do need to explore these things, these possibilities. 
just sort of help us understand what's happening and how serious something might be. Or I recently did a workshop for an organization in which I, I was asked a question. I was doing a writing workshop, helping people to observe their surroundings, just really gently noticing what was in the room around them and stuff. And this participant said, my life's really difficult because of, she went into why, um, and she said, is there a benefit in me writing down the things that I observe if they're difficult? We had a really interesting conversation about that. I sort of said, well, it depends what it's for, really. Mm. If it helps you, then yeah. Yeah. I think what would be helpful with writing things down is that if you write it as if you're talking to someone else and like, as if you're going to send it to someone, you yeah, tend to parse out all the aspects of it. Whereas if you're just writing it for yourself, you'll just think all the worst things. So if you think about it like you're going to tell someone this, then you start to parse out everything and then you eventually come to an answer when you've considered everything rather than just focusing on the negative whereas my stuff if i if i sometimes i'll do something i saw a man looking through his next to me on the tube and he had his phone and he was just looking through lots of pictures of the same white dog and he looked sort of sad and who knows it's like you said you, we don't know what that is but it felt mm. like he'd lost his dog and he was sad um and i just posted it and i i did have a lot of people say oh no that's too sad miranda that's i can't I need to just not, you know, so I have to, with my feed, I'm very careful not to make it to, I'll see the stuff and I'll process it in my own way, but I'll, what I'll put out as content, I, I want to try and lift mm -hmm. things rather than add to yeah. that. There's so much of that stuff. Yeah. yeah. Are there any other habits that you employ in your life that you find beneficial? Yes, them. walking is the main thing that I find incredibly beneficial. I walk and walk and walk. I do it less now I'm a parent because I'm normally, I just have less time to, I mean, I, was, I used to walk a lot. My friends laugh about it a bit. So I would walk back from Tottenham. I don't know if you know these areas so much, but from Tottenham, from, I don't know, King's Cross, not King's Cross, further, I used to regularly walk home to Tottenham from Kennington, which takes two and a half hours, I think. Wow. So I would finish a meditation class I did in Kennington teaching and I'd walk home and I'd get home about 12.30 at night. <laughs> and wow. I used to do, I, I think the other reason I don't do that when I'm a parent so much is because my sense of safety, now that I'm a mum, it's not mm -hmm. that I didn't have a sense of safety, but now I think, oh God, what if I was walking at mid, you know, and something happened? And da, da, da. Mm -hmm. But also, I've got to be up at six because she'll be up at six. So, mm -hmm. I'm not, you know. but yeah, walking is a big one. Um, and then, yeah, I mean, the same thing as everybody else, I guess swimming, mm -hmm. reading, drawing. I don't know, everyone has their things. But for me, yeah. walking, it just helps me to process things. You seem to be someone that kind of dabbles in so many different things that you, you, you're a writer, you, you act, you're a voice actress. What I find interesting, what kind of came to me was, it was an Oscar Wilde quote that I won't be able to remember, but <laughs> the, 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 the gist of it was, um, those who know exactly what they want to do from a young age and then that's all they do throughout their lives, that's a burden. That's the burden of certainty, whereas those who have multiple paths put in front of them and they just 
pick whatever one they want to go on and you could change pick and change your tracks that's the that's the privilege of uncertainty do you think that's true in your life I do think it's really true and I think it's really nice and I think you then look back and you think oh well, what ties all these things together so all the mm. things I've always done the tying together is and even my glass making degree it was all about telling a story and about finding beauty and detail I think that's what I've always been trying to do but with different paths towards it and I feel like society is becoming more forgiving of artists and people who want to do that because it, I have a feeling when I was growing up that people were much more like no, he's an actor. That's what he does. Why is he painting? This is ridiculous. No one, you know. And now it does feel like there's room for us to wear different hats and to try different things out. There should be. I hope so. Life mm. is long and short at the same time, and so you should. Yeah. I did feel that when I was um, growing up, that that was the done thing. Was that you? A lot, a lot of um, school was putting university on you. It was basically saying you should go to university. That's all, and that you should pick your career. You need to know what you're going to do before you've even left high school. You need to know what you're going to do for the rest of your life. You need to get a degree in that field and then just do that for the rest of your life and just keep working up the ladder of corporation or something like that. Mm. Whereas um, it's, to me anyway, I, I did my degree in journalism. And when I was doing my degree in journalism, I wanted to do music journalism and then it was for about a year I was doing that and I found that I was getting bored of that because all the music started to sound the same to me as I was reviewing the music so then I was like well let's move away from that then I started getting more into like feature writing wanting to get my opinion across then I got into the podcasting then I got into like the academic world and I wanted to do like I wanted to learn more and I always think like if I went back to journalism and I was only going to do music journalism that wouldn't, that's not the best option for me. And I think it was the fact that I let all these doors be open and I went through all of them instead of just having the one door and sticking to that. I think that's, it's something that we maybe need to encourage young people to do more is to let all these doors be open and to have multiple different paths. And you really shouldn't know what you're gonna be doing for the rest of your life. And I don't think you should ever know what you're going to do for your life you should always have these options yeah I mean like, of course there are people a friend of mine wanted to be a doctor from when she was four and she's now a doctor and she loves it you know so yeah there are some people who for that for that works but generally I completely agree with you and they say don't they with teaching that ideally you, you don't just teach for 30 years you go off and do something else for a bit because mm. it helps your teaching to have been out in the world doing yeah. something say that I don't know but also I think there are different things that are right for different stages of your life yes yeah, I think you should always be, I think if, there, if there's something that you've wanted to do from a young age, you should obviously pursue that. But with the added like caveat that there, like you don't have to do that for the rest of your life, like you're not committed to it. I think a lot of people think that if they, ju if they commit to it, like one degree, then that's them for the rest of their lives. And I think they should always have that in their mind that there is other options out there. And if, they, if, they, if they've got something that they want to do forever and they, and they enjoy it and they're doing it, then that's really great. Um, but they should always have that other option. And I, th I think it's, it's also more with creative people. It tends to be like that, that you should have multiple different, because if, so, if someone's good at um, drawing, then they might also be good at something else that's creative like writing and it's yeah. it's i think it works better for creative people to have all these different options 
ties in really nicely what you're saying with the whole thing we were talking about just before of the little moments in time that could go in any direction mm-hmm. and being open to that mm. i think that's also something interesting with the nature of time is that yes we should be present more but we should also be perfectly aware of like what our past means and mm. what our future means and i think a lot of like rhetoric online is to say be present all the time but it's like yeah that can be helpful but you should also be aware yeah. of yourself moving through time because you need to know you need it's, it's like that kind of delayed gratification thing like if you go for a run you're making your future self better yes. like you're almost time traveling through time yes because because you're you're ensuring that you're going to feel better in an hour i think um, that's all the time i often thank my past self for something yeah yeah um do you have is it, does anything come to mind when i say like what's the most surprisingly inspirational moment you've witnessed oh my gosh there's quite a few possibilities here inspirational is an interesting word though so mm. i saw a really nice moment of a and these are both sports related ones i think okay there was a kid, she looked about 11. There was a mum with a, one of those spaceship-like prams, you know, the ones that, you, that are just heavy and massive. And she was at the bottom of the stairs, it's, I think it was Seven Sisters Tube, and just looking up, thinking, oh God. And I was coming up down the corridor, um, but ahead of me was this, this girl who was about 11 who said, can I help? And the woman said, um, oh, if you think you can and I was thinking as I was walking up I'm, I'm gonna have to help this kid she just picked it up and like yeah, it's amazing and when they got to the top the woman said wow you're strong and she said yeah football and walked off <laughs> and I just thought there was something really nice about that and then there was another one another one with I was talking to a friend about and it's changed actually but the lack of women in sports in the papers in general because I knew women were playing sports but there was just the papers used to just be you know, we were invisible there. It was weird. And I remember saying to my friend, oh, it's such a shame, you know, who's going to change this? This needs to change. And there were two stu- um, sports science students next to me on the tube who'd heard my conversation and they said, we are. <laughs> mm. That was quite nice. But yeah. actually, it has changed a lot. I opened the Metro recently and there were there was a lovely gender split of kind of sports coverage, which is great. Yeah. But um, there's so many, honestly, if I could just think about it for longer I would work out what they were but the, mm-hmm. but, but sometimes all my observations swim in front of my eyes a bit yeah mm-hmm. it was a really nice there's a, the homeless guy who somebody gave him a sandwich with a napkin is this right and before he ate the sandwich he just used the napkin to wipe down his dog who got damp from the rain and then mm-hmm. he shared the sandwich with his dog that was nice. Yeah. Just, just a moment of people are funny about sometimes people having animals on the street, like it's not fair. But I, my impression is that often those people will look after those animals before themselves, you know. Yeah, you usually see, like if someone's on the street and they've got a dog, you usually see dog food before you see anything pertaining to the person. Because usually they're feeding their dog before they feed themselves. But I'll go away and think about that. So that's a good question. Mm. Um, so <laughs> this, we'll move on to like some quick fire questions. Yeah. Um, 
So some some of these questions are not mine. Some of them are from um, James Lipton's Actor Studio. Some of them are from Tim Ferriss, and some of them are mine. Um, mm -hmm. So, what's one book you've gifted to the most people? <gasps> what's one book that I've gifted to the most people? If they haven't read it, I would give somebody Rebecca. Okay. Mm -hmm. Um. Do you know, I don't often give books as a gift because I just don't assume what people read. Yeah, of course, yeah. It's so personal. Mm, yeah, I know what you mean. Isn't that funny? It's rare that I would give a book. I would give a book mm. token, which I know sounds a bit like a present, like an odd present for a strange aunt. But book tokens are great because they can, they can decide what they want. I'm looking at my bookshelves now. <laughs> That is only, that's one of my favourite presents I've got. I've gotten that two years running now. Um, and it's just a voucher. We've got an old bookstore about five to ten minutes, like, walk from mm -hmm. where I am now. And it's a beautiful store. It's, like, five different stories. Wow. And, you, and it's, it's they've got those old-style ladders that you climb up to get books. Um, and a voucher for there has been one of the best presents I've ever had because wow. it means you can go there and spend, like, an hour or two just picking out a book. Yeah. yeah my um my relatives do give me book tokens so i want to say to them it is the best present it's not a present for me. <laughs> <laughs> um, i am reading an amazing book at the moment called the scapegoat which is also okay. definitely de maurier mm. uh but yeah i don't know okay what's then uh, one purchase of a hundred pounds or less that is most benefited your life Purchase of hundred pounds or less—that's the most benefit of my life. Now I feel like I want to have these questions on a list and go away and think about them. Um, <laughs> I don't know. We can circle back. <laughs> just, I mean, because then you start going. Well, I got you know this kind of. Uh thing in the kitchen but I don't use it that much or uh, my something for my cat I don't know okay um, <laughs> if, if you could have a giant billboard anywhere with yeah. anything on it going out to millions of people every day what would it say uh I think it would say stop to notice mm -hmm. yeah good What's one absurd? What What's one absurd or weird thing that you love? Um, I tell you what I don't like is that weird sweet strange cheese from Sweden that I tried recently. Norway don't like, but I do like cheese in general. What's a strange mm. thing that I like? Well, I used to be a magician and I really enjoy performing escapology. Wow, <laughs> what does that mean? You know, where you get kind of tied up or, or, or you're in a situation where you can't... Oh, yeah, okay. Right. I loved that. That was a great... That's a great moment to be on stage when you've managed to get yourself out of something impossible and the reaction is just beautiful. Yeah, yeah. Your magic. Yeah. <laughs> in the last five years, what belief, behaviour or habit has most impacted your life? I think what we were talking about, this idea of, and I've been thinking about it a lot in meditation too, about mm. people doing their best. That's impacted on me a lot. Um, the meditation has most recently turned a corner a bit for me with 
those hot emotions where we react quickly to something that's mm. not us, just giving me that sense of a bit of space, bit of time to realize what we were talking about earlier when it hits your body first. Just get a little bit of time to go, oh, I'm getting that thing where I'm reacting, I'm getting hot. Maybe, I, maybe there's another way. So I think that practice has really helped. Um, oh, and for the first time ever, uh, we, we moved not that long ago um, to a place that has a real sense of community. And I've started getting involved in some local community stuff, kind of a bit of gardening and some other things. And that has been amazing. That's completely different. It, it's turned where I live into how, how it was at uni when you used to just bump into your friends on campus all the time. Oh, it's, yeah. real, it's, it's, it's changed changed my life. I'd recommend everybody gets out into their community and does something, even something small. Yeah. You feel connected to it. Mm-hmm. What, what advice would you give to a young, ambitious 18-year-old? Oh, well, I wish I'd taken up climbing at 18. I, I'm really quite into bouldering now. I'm not brilliant at it, but I love it. Mm. It's so good for your mind. It's so good for your body and your coordination. I'd recommend climbing. But if for some reason, physically, that's not something you can do, I just want to say to every 18-year-old, give them a hug and say, you're amazing. You've no idea. You're going to look mm. back and think, yeah it just all feels intense then doesn't it yeah and I loved I loved a lot about my 20s there's a lot of really good things there's a lot of freedom before everything starts to get <laughs> put into its boxes you know yeah yeah just tell me that they're, they're, they're amazing and not to worry what's some advice that they should ignore <laughs> oh yeah I don't think you have to worry hugely about I don't know. I don't want to tell, I don't want to say anything that's, you know, unhelpful for anyone. Mm-hmm. Everyone's obsessed with exams results and obsessed with the route mm-hmm. you're going to take and this and that and the decisions that you have to make. And it's not like that. You can keep making decisions. You can keep changing your mind. Yeah. What's your favorite word? What loads and loads of favorite words. I sometimes list them on Twitter and then people add their own. <laughs> Um, nincompoop's a nice one just <laughs> <laughs> uh, I quite like leaflet that's a nice word to say yeah, yeah. <laughs> what's yeah. your do you have a least favourite word yeah well, well it's changed completely because when I was little I hated the word silly which is weird because when you're small everyone says that and I say it all the time now mm. what is my least favourite word Words are beautiful, aren't they? Can you think of a word you don't like? Well, there's so many people that, that, that don't like the word moist. Just It just hits funny. them funny. Yeah, yeah. They just don't like the, the sound of it. Just kind of hits them wrong. Um, I don't get that. I have it visually. I've got lots of lots of things that visually uh, I find difficult to look at. But words not... I just don't have those these things. Like, visually, I don't like... It's really interesting because I've got a, love, a dear friend called Roz and she doesn't like it when she sees holes in things lots together like say right uh, yeah these sponges or something like that yeah which is fine mm-hmm. for me i do not like lumpy things especially if they're oh do you remember giz um there's a film uh but yeah <laughs> i find that difficult that texture mm. that's the equivalent of my word okay um 
What sound or noise do you love? Um, oh, I specifically love the sound of wind in the trees and the leaves. It's my favourite sound. That and the sea, but they're so similar. You could mm. almost think if you closed your eyes, one was the other. Yeah. And do you have a sound that you hate? Drilling. It's not my favourite sound. If God exists, what would you like him to say when you arrive at the pearly gates? Oh, yeah, welcome. Sit down and have a half glass of rosé. <laughs> um, uh, it's okay. You did okay. You did your best. That's what I'd want mm. him to say. And lastly, this probably isn't a quick fire question, but what is the meaning of life? Oh, wow. So I think compassion and love for your fellow beings and for the world is actually the meaning of life. I think without it, we are lost. Mm. It's like the, the Muhammad Ali quote, it was something like, um, helping your fellow humans is the rent you pay for your time on earth. And that's, that's nice. pretty much it. Um, so that's, we'll just finish up there, but thank you so much for taking the time. I always, I always say this at the end is that I'm always very pleasantly surprised at how many people come back to me on email and they give up an hour of their time. Um, it's very much appreciated. And it's, I, I love having these conversations. They're just, they're so interesting and they get so um, deep into the weeds. Um, but where can people follow you? Where can people buy the book? And where can just people stay up to date with what you're doing? So the book, The Year I Stopped to Notice, is, is everywhere, really. If you just look it up, it's, it's, it's there. Um, it's just about to launch in the States on August the 9th. My Twitter is at Miranda Keeling. It's the same for Instagram. I have a website, mirandakeeling.com. You'll get all those linked up in the show notes so everyone can just click them there. Um, but yeah, thank you so much for taking the time. I'm going to pop your book just next to all the other guests. Um, so yes, thank you so much. You're welcome. Right, guys, so that's the end of episode 26 of the In Context podcast. Thank you so much for listening and thank you to Miranda Keeling for taking the time to speak. I hope you found that as delightful a conversation as I did. Like I said at the start, if you want to stay up to date with everything concerning the In Context podcast, the Struggle for Meaning newsletter and all of my other work, you can follow my social media channels, which will be linked in the show notes. There'll also be a link there to my YouTube channel where you can watch all of the episodes of the podcast as well as some short clips. And I just have a quick favour to ask if you could please follow or subscribe wherever you're listening and please leave a good review. It genuinely means a lot. It's the number one way you can show support to the podcast and to myself. But until next time for episode 27 of the In Context podcast, I'm Gregor Thompson and thank you very, very much for listening. Take care.